So I've been reading this book to my children uh, over the last couple months that maybe some of you have all also read. It's called A Thousand Shall Fall. Have any of you ever read this book? It's kind of a classic book that, that I had never read. Um, I actually started reading another book with my children, and they didn't want really much to do with it, The Chronicles of Narnia. I don't know if you've heard of it. <laughs> we started reading that book, and then I introduced this book, and they're like, let's read this one instead. So uh, we're going to return to The Chronicles of Narnia. But it's a fascinating book about a gentleman, along with his family, who lived in Germany in the 1930s and 40s. And of course, you know what happened in Germany during that time. This gentleman, this particular gentleman, had been drafted into the German army under the reign of Hitler, and he was quite unaware of the big things that were going on. He eventually became aware of them and, and in his own way, tried to subvert the military tactics that were going on in his own unit. But his, his wife and his three and then four children were left to fend for themselves in Frankfurt. And they were all devoted Seventh-day Adventist Christians. And so they were trying to navigate life as Christians in Germany during that terrible time. One of the uh, particular occasions that came to mind as I was reading through this book with my children that came to mind as I was thinking about this particular topic today is that at one point, they were being pressured. The wife and the, and, the, and the children were being pressured to join these various Nazi government groups, and they would repeatedly refuse to do so for many different reasons, one of which was because of their commitment to honor and observe God through the Sabbath. And so what this lady experienced, her name was, the German name is Frau, I'm teaching you German here today, uh, is woman, Hazel, Lady Hazel. She, um, one day, uh, all of a sudden, the, the monies that were coming in from the government as payment for her husband's service stopped coming. And so she was very alarmed, and she said, well, God will provide, and, and they, they didn't come the next week and the week after. And so she finally determined that she was going to get to the bottom of this, and so she wrote into the, the government, and she said, where's my money? I'm, I have these four children. I'm owed this certain amount of money, and it, and it didn't come. And so she actually wrote a letter to her husband who was on the front lines, and, and she said, you know, Darling, my money has not come. Things are really bad here. And she never heard from him. Well, a few months later, she received a letter from the government that said, come into our offices. We need to speak with you. And so she went in. And when she met with the folks, they pulled out the letter that she had sent to her husband. She realized it had not, been, it had not gotten to him. And they said, is this your letter? Yes, it is. Well, we go through all the soldiers' mail, and we realize that you are speaking bad about the government to your husband, and we cannot have that. That is punishable by death if you speak poor of the government. And you need to go, and you need to go meet with these folks at this certain place at this certain time, and they will, they will tell you what your destiny is. And so she nervously waited for that day, and the place she was told to go was this intimidating government building that, that everybody knew was a dangerous place. There were many people who went there, and they never came back. 
And so she nervously prepared for it and she kind of tried to quill the fears of her young children and she said to them, you know, mommy has to go at the certain time in a certain place. If I do not return by such and such a time, you are to leave and go to these people's homes. And so the kids waited anxiously. Mommy went, waited anxiously. She said, if I don't come by 2 o'clock, you are to leave. And so the t- clock was ticking and right at like 1.59, she walks in and she was okay. And she... She explained to them what had happened. She went into this, it was, it was the brown house in the center of Frankfurt. She went into this brown house and she told her name to the receptionist and they welcomed her in and she was to have an appointment with one of the most dangerous men in Frankfurt of that time. And so she went nervously and sheepishly into his office with her head down and he said, are you Frau Hasel? Yes. And are these... Are you requesting more money? Yes. Is it true that you wrote a letter to your husband? Yes. Is it true that you have refused to join the Nazi League? Yes. And she said, she didn't hold back. She said, sir, I am a Seventh-day Adventist, and I have certain convictions, and I cannot give my allegiance to, to Fuhrer Hitler. And I and my, my children and my whole family, we are committed to being Seventh-day Adventists. And we are committed to not having our children go to school on Sabbaths. And the man said, you claim you're a Seventh-day Adventist? Yes. He said, hold on just a minute. And he picks up the phone, he makes a phone call, and he says, okay, I've just verified that you are Seventh-day Adventists. And she very anxiously and nervously awaited his determination. He said, you know... I'm going to award you your money. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to tell others that you should have it. And she said, well, what what happened? And he said, you know what? Do you know the Myers? Yes, I know the Myers. They were fellow Seventh-day Adventist church members of hers. He said, well, you know what? The Myers are my next-door neighbor. And when I first moved into my apartment, they invited me over for dinner, even at a time when food was extremely scarce. He's like, that was incredibly generous of them. And so because of their kindness, I'm going to allow you not only your freedom, I'm going to award you the money that we have not paid you. When I read that, I thought, wow, that's quite an amazing story. All because of the radical generosity and hospitality in the heart and the thick of the most heinous war that has ever been carried out. The generosity of these followers of Jesus to extend hospitality to this man who was seemingly their enemy. You know, this morning, and again, I'm going to I'm gonna have to run as fast as I can, all right? We're going to run together, but, you know, we're learning to be marathon runners, right? This morning, we're, we're, we're continuing this series, Viral, which is all about unleashing the revolution, the Jesus revolution that, that the Bible, the book of Revelation, has said will take place before Jesus comes back. And we are at this moment, this juncture in Earth's history, the end of days, I believe, where God is trying to unleash this revolution. And it's all based upon the good news of what God has done in Jesus. 
This, this redefinition of who God is, of, of his self-sacrificing love. And we learn that the early church, the early believers, they had one mission, and they had one mission alone, and that was to go out and to make disciples. They were to go out and, and bring the message of, of God's rescuing love to the world. And the, the way they did it was surprisingly not obvious to us. Because the method, the way in which God started this revolution to begin with was on the cross, and then as it spread throughout the the land of Palestine during that time, they used a rather simple yet effective method. And I believe that God is using this method again during this closing time in Earth's history to spread this viral revolution. We're going to run through a few verses here from the book of Luke. And I apologize that I'm always in Luke. I know I'm always in Luke. But we're going to run through, I don't know, five or six verses just really fast. And I want to see if you can pick up what we note in the Gospel of Luke as that one of Jesus' core ways of spreading his revolutionary message. And it's what the the early Jesus followers did as well. Okay, So just very rapid. Okay, Put on your seatbelts. We're going to run through them, these verses in Luke. And you'll pick up very quickly what we're talking about. Starting in the book of Luke, chapter 5, verses 29 through 32. Later, Levi had a what? He had a banquet in his home. With Jesus as the guest of honor, many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples, why do you eat and drink with such scum? That's the New Living Translation, quite a way to put it, right? Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. So that's verse number one. Look at now verse number two, Luke chapter seven, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to do what? Eat. Very simple. Notice the next verse. Verse 3. Luke chapter 11, verse 37. As Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So he went and took his place at the table. Noticing pattern already? Luke chapter 14, our fourth verse. Verse 1. One Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees, and the people were watching him closely. They were watching him closely. Notice the next verse. This is the fifth passage we're going to look at. Luke chapter 15. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. Notice that. Notice, we're going to look, this is our final verse that we're going to look at for this particular theme. It's in Luke chapter 22. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat to get down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins, for I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Just a little side note here that I think is very fascinating that I love this New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, I have mentioned him many times before, quoted him. Notice he says, when Jesus wanted to explain to his followers what his forthcoming death was all about, he did not give them a theory, a model, a metaphor, or any such thing. He gave them a what? A meal. Fascinating. 
Jesus wants to explain, okay, I'm going to die soon. And the way that you're going to understand what I'm doing is we're going to have a meal together. That's really fascinating. Notice what the Jesus followers did after he went back up into heaven and they carried out his mission and his method. Notice in Acts chapter 2, this is also Luke writing this. He writes in Acts chapter 2, verses 49 and then 46 through 47, they spent their time, that is the early Jesus followers, they spent their time learning from the apostles and they were like family to each other. They also did what? They broke bread and prayed together. Day after day, they met together in the temple. They broke bread together. They say, he says it again. They broke bread together in different homes and shared their food happily and freely while praising God. Everyone liked them. That's a pretty cool thing to to note, huh? Everybody liked them. And each day, the Lord did what? added to their group others who were being saved. So check this out. This is a wonderfully simple way that God builds up his kingdom. And it's simply doing this. Check this out. Are you ready for it? It's eating. Have any of you done any of that today already? This was one of Jesus' most most profound and yet simple and the early Jesus followers. This is what they did. This was their evangelistic method to go and sit down at a table with somebody and eat with them. It seems so wonderfully simple, doesn't it? All of us eat, don't we? All of us, now some of us maybe more than others and some of us more than we should and maybe some of us not enough as we should. But this is a very, such an incredibly simple way to spread God's revolution. Like, all of us can eat. All of us do eat. So all of us can be those disciples who make disciples. Check out this point that a couple authors make. The author, Caesar Kalinowski, he points out there are three ways the New Testament completes the sentence, the Son of Man came. So you've heard that phrase before, the Son of Man came, the Son of Man came, the Son of Man came. Notice these three instances. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man, number two, came to seek and to save the lost. That, by the way, we didn't even include that in our verse, but our passages, but that was when he ate a meal with Zacchaeus. He went to his home. So this is the other way he declared the Son of Man came, came to seek and save the lost. And he says the Son of Man came eating and drinking. The first two statements are statements of purpose. Why did Jesus come? He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom, to seek and save the lost. But the third statement identifies Jesus' method. How did Jesus come serving and seeking and saving the lost? He came eating and drinking. This is, this is Jesus' method of seeking and saving the lost, eating and drinking. Very, very simple and yet so profound. The author goes on to say, Jesus was a party animal. Woo. I don't know if I feel comfortable with that, right? But that's what he did. That's what people said. Boy, this guy's a glutton and a drunkard, this dude. He's a party animal. They were, they were scandalized by what he did. He was a party animal. His mission strategy was a long meal stretching into the evening. He discipled people around a table. Did you know that when you eat, it releases oxytocin, which is a bonding chemical? Meaning, when you have oxytocin released, it bonds you to the person that you are with. 
It's brilliant. It's called kind of like the love chemical. We won't get into all the implications of that. But literally, literally, when you sit around the table with somebody and you eat together, you are forming chemical bonds with that other person in ways that would not be otherwise accomplished just by sitting down with them on a couch. But there is some, and and this is brilliant. This is the strategy that, that God uses to spread his kingdom, to increase his revolution, to, to have that revolution go all around the world is simply sitting at a table and eating with somebody. Notice what another author says. I like the way he puts it. Tim Chester, Jesus didn't run projects, establish ministries, create programs, or put on events. He ate meals. That's what he did. If you look at the Gospels over, we already looked at many of them, over and over and over again, Jesus is at a table with somebody. There's almost more times that Jesus is at a table with somebody than sermons we have from him. And all of those teachings that we have are often born out of questions that come up as people are sitting at the table together. And so this was Jesus' method of growing his kingdom. This was Jesus' method of spreading the revolution. It goes on to say, in the ministry of Jesus, meals were enacted grace, community, and mission. When you combine a passion for Jesus with shared meals, you create potent gospel opportunities. You love Jesus? You love Jesus? Maybe you don't. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, I'm still just trying to figure Jesus out. But you and I, whether we love Jesus or we don't love Jesus, we can still enact the gospel by just sitting down with people and sharing a meal with them. It's very simple and yet so profound. So our big idea this morning is the kingdom grows, the revolution spreads through radical and courageous hospitality. Why do I say radical and courageous? Well, think of the story at the beginning with the German family that radically and courageously said, come into our home, eat our food. We don't have a lot, but come into our home. It takes a lot of courage to say, you know what, God, my bank account is yours, and I'm, I'm giving it over. I'm not even giving it to you. It's yours, and I want to use it to bless other people. And so we may, like the woman there with Elijah, we may think, boy, there's not enough oil in the jar. I'm not going to have enough. But what did she do? She, was, she radically hosted Elijah. And God's kingdom grows as a result. And so you and I, by his grace, if we are to be these revolutionary Jesus followers, if we are going to be here at this moment in earth's history, if we are going to be a part of this revolution, he's saying, share meals with people. This other book that I just quoted by Tim Chester, he tells a story that I think kind of adequately encapsulates some of my anxiety as to why I don't want to quite step out into this reality full bore. Um, And maybe it resonates with you, but he shares this, and I'm just going to read it to you from this book. He says, Jim Peterson tells the story of his friend Mario, with whom he had studied the Bible for four years before Mario became a Christian. That's a long time, right? Four years. The Bible studies reflected the fact that Mario was a Marxist intellectual who'd read all the leading Western philosophies. So this guy is steeped in all of the secular Marxist worldview. And it says, a couple of years after his conversion, Jim and Mario were reminiscing. 
do you know what it really was that made me decide to become a Christian? Mario asked. Was it an argument? Do you think it was a, a, a philosophical argument? Peterson thought of all their Bible studies and philosophical discussions. Mario's reply took him by surprise. Remember that first time I stopped by your house? We were on our way someplace together, and I had a bowl of soup with you, your wife, and your children. And as I sat there observing you, your wife, your children, and how you related to each other, I asked myself, when will I have a relationship like this with my fiancé? When I realized that the answer was never, I concluded I had to become a Christian for the sake of my own survival. Fascinating story. Simple bowl of soup. He saw the gospel being embodied and lived out right in front of his eyes. He said, oh, these people have something that I don't have. And the bowl of soup was one part of that gesture, that radical hospitality. But there's more to the story because this is what resonated with me. Peterson did remember the occasion. He remembered his children behaving badly. (laughs) And his frustration as having to correct them in front of Mario Yet Mario saw the grace of Christ bidding that, binding that family together. Peterson comments, this is now, he's quoting Peterson. Our family was unaware of its influence on Mario. God had done this work through our family without our knowing it. We tend to see the weaknesses and incongruities in our lives, and our reaction is to recoil at the thought of letting outsiders get close enough to see us as we really are. It's a scary thought, isn't it? I don't want people to see who I really am. Even if our assessment is accurate, it is my observation that any Christian, any Christian, who is sincerely seeking to walk with God, in spite of all his flaws, is reflecting something of Christ. Isn't that cool that when I invite somebody to sit at my table, my children don't have to be perfect. My house does not have to be spotless. Amen? Amen. My own ability to make arguments with this person or to come up with philosophical reasons for why, it doesn't matter. I can be the most broken, weak, unintelligent, uninformed Christian on the planet. But if by God's grace I have surrendered to him... And I said, Jesus, just use me. Just use me. I don't have much to offer. I don't have a big house. I don't have good food. I don't have much to offer. But God works through those humble means when we just sit at the table with people. So I want to challenge you this morning. This, This theme, if you haven't noticed by now, comes up a lot in my teaching. But it's like such a pivotal part of God's kingdom building is that we would be people who sit at the table with others. So I'm going to keep repeating this, and I'm going to keep encouraging you. And I want to invite you. You eat, no doubt, even if you're the healthiest of healthiest people, you eat at least 14 meals a week, right? You eat perhaps 21 meals a week. 
Maybe seven. Okay, maybe there's even seven. I'm going to challenge you, and I I give these challenges, I know, repeatedly, but I'm going to keep coming back to them. I, some of us eat 28 meals a week. Some of us, okay, whatever it is. The point is, we can take one meal. How many? One meal and share it with somebody who does not know Jesus. And you just do that, and you see what God does through it. You say, well, I don't have a, a home that I can invite them in. To. It's not big enough. It's not fancy enough. Whatever. Invite them into your home. Go out to eat with them. Whatever it is. Just, you, you are at work. You have a lunch break. Eat it with somebody who doesn't know Jesus. Sit on a park bench. Whatever it is, by God's grace, say, God, I don't, even, I don't even know what I would say. I don't know what I would do. I don't know anything about that. Just do it. Just share a meal with somebody who doesn't know Jesus co-worker, a classmate, a family member who doesn't know Jesus. It's so simple, but this is the way. How does it go on that big idea I shared? I think we've lost it. The kingdom grows and the revolution spreads through radical and courageous hospitality. That's how it's going to happen. It's not going to happen because I get up and I go on TV and I speak to five million people. That is Simply a hearing of the gospel, but it's not a seeing of the gospel, which is what people need to do. So that's my invitation for you this this week, and I'm going to hold you to it, all right? I'm usually pretty bashful when I'm one-on-one, but I'm going to ask you, if I see you, I'm going to say, did you share a meal with somebody that doesn't know Jesus this week? Okay? 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 All right, thank you, Robin. Thank you, everybody.